Welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. Today, I have a very special guest, Peggy Reif Miller, who has a website and a blog on merchant marine history called The Seagoing Cowboys, and has specialized in telling the stories of some of the forgotten ships of World War II, as well as their crew. She's also the author of a book called The Seagoing Cowboy. And we're going to be talking about the Victory-class ships today with a special look at the SS Battle Creek Victory, named after the city of Battle Creek, as well as the Seagoing Cowboys who came from all over the U.S., and also talk about her book. Welcome to the show today, Peggy. Thank you for taking time to be on the podcast. Oh, thanks, Michael. It's exciting to be here. Well, Peggy, could you begin by telling the audience a little bit about yourself and how you came to be involved with like researching this unique aspect of naval history? Sure. I'm a writer. I live in Englewood, Ohio, uh, which is on the northwest edge of Dayton. And for the past 20 years, I've been focusing on a history that's just very dear to my heart. And that, as you said, was the history of the seagoing cowboys and also the related history of the Heifer Project. And for you to be able to understand this Mm -hmm. history and how I got into it, I need to explain about two organizations that were involved. Sure. And the first was UNRRA. U-N-R-R-A, which stands for the United Nations Relief and Rehabilitation Administration. Mm -hmm. It was formed during the war by 44 of the allied countries to be able to provide relief uh, to the devastated countries at the end of the war. And then the Mm. other organization was the Brethren Service Committee. That was the outreach arm of the Church of the Brethren. And one of their projects was the Heifer Project, And in short, that was a program to send heifers, young cows, um, to Europe after the war to help people, devastated people, be able to feed themselves. So UNRWA, um, the, the Brethren Service Committee, wanted, they lobbied UNRWA to be able to send Brethren heifers as part of their shipments. And... UNRWA, when they decided to send live cargo, uh, livestock, needed men to take care of the animals on their ships. And the two organizations made an agreement that UNRWA would ship the Brethren Heifer Project animals free of charge, Mm -hmm. and in return, the Brethren Service Committee would recruit all of the cattle tenders that UNRWA would need to take care of some 200,000 head of livestock that they wanted to send to Europe. Wow. So those guys ended up being called seagoing cowboys. Wow. Yeah. That's an amazing story. It is. It really is. I grew up in the Church of the Brethren, so I knew about this history. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, we we had stories in our youth magazines and and so forth about the seagoing cowboys. <clears throat> but what I didn't know was that my grandpa Abe had been one of those cowboys. Wow! So after he died, my father gave me an envelope of photos that Grandpa had from his trip. And I got curious, mm-hmm. you know, what would Grandpa Abe's um, experience have been like? So I started interviewing men that I knew had been seagoing cowboys. 
and you know one led to another and another and their stories were just so fascinating and compelling um and i it didn't take long to realize that this was a hidden history yeah most definitely it, it was it was hiding away in their minds and in their diaries and their photo albums, which were hiding away mm-hmm. in their drawers and attics. So my mission became um, documenting that history um, instead of writing the young adult novel that was my original mm-hmm. intention wow. uh, about it. Yeah. yeah. So a lot of the ships that were involved in this were the Victory class ships, right? And maybe the Liberty class ships. Um, yeah, both. Both mm-hmm. of them. So the Victory Class ships were built. When when were they first introduced into World War II? Um, in 1944. Okay. The the Liberties were built first, mm-hmm. mass production. Um, there were 2,700 of them built during the war. And they were built only to last for the war. Okay. So. They weren't all that sturdy, and they also were rather slow, going at 11 knots, which was about 12 mile an hour. And they needed a faster ship uh, as the Mm -hmm. war heated up. So the victories were designed. um, They were sturdier. They were larger. uh, Went 15 to 17 knots, which would be about 17 to 20 mile per hour. Okay. The first victory ship was launched February 28 of 1944 in Oregon. Okay. Portland, Oregon. Um, named the United Victory. All right. And the next 33 or 34 ships were named then after the Allied Nations. Okay. And then the next batch was named after cities and towns, thus the Battle Creek Victory. Right, right. And then there was a batch named after universities and colleges that followed that. Okay. Yeah, there's quite a, a mix of names on there, um, and there's several that I saw that were from Michigan, like we were just talking about before we started recording here, that there's uh, the SS Alma Victory was named after Alma College in Alma, Michigan. SS Hillsdale Victory was named after the College Hillsdale, but it's also located in Hillsdale, Michigan. And then there's mm-hmm. um, Midlands, we speculate maybe Mich- Midland, Michigan, Lenawa was probably definitely um, named after the Lenawa here in Michigan, and then SS Albion. But you said you found a few other ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's the SS Adrian Victory that was named after Adrian College. Okay. And that was a livestock ship as well for UNRWA. Mm-hmm. Uh, the SS Calvin Victory, named after Calvin College in Grand Rapids. Wow. Um, was also a livestock ship, and I was just in touch with their archivist Friday, um, and they have a file there about the um, the launching of the ship and the launching ceremony and how it was named uh, come came to be named after after the college. And then there's a Saginaw Victory, which was also a livestock ship. Okay, and um, four others that that weren't livestock ships were the Albion Victory, named after the city, mm-hmm. uh, Escanaba Victory, Hillsdale, you already mentioned, right. and the Hope Victory was named after Hope College in, in Holland. So, yeah. yeah, Michigan has quite a wealth of 
of ships. Yeah, and I, I found a little blog on the Albion Victory ship, and it was named after Albion College. Kristen by mm-hmm. Albion Mayor W. Clark Dean and his wife back in, in Fairfield, Maryland, January 5th, 1945. That's kind of an interesting little Calhoun County history for my listeners. Um, yeah, and I've... I've found conflicting information on whether it was named after the college or after the city so oh, okay yeah and uh, some of them were so close like alma could have been named after the town you could say and same with hillsdale you know it's just interesting yeah. some of the records got lost so uh for the in the maritime administration moves mm-hmm. so some some of that history isn't clear yeah that was provided by um one of the people i know over at the albion a historical society so it appears that he had a lot of data from the local um, mayor uh-huh. there so can we talk a little bit about the history of the battle creek victory when was it built and what was its involvement in the war if you know sure uh, it was kind um, of towards the tail end of the war i know that yeah yeah it was built by permanente metals corporation um in richmond california mm-hmm. in their ship shipyard number two uh, its keel was laid May 31, 1945, wow. and it didn't see the light of day until August 17, 1945, which would have been two days after Japan surrendered. So it it um, never really saw active war duty, okay. but I'm guessing um, that probably in that first year, um, it was under the control of the War Shipping Administration, mm-hmm. and they... Um, transferred it then to the Marine Transport Lines who operated it for a year. And I'm guessing during that time, it was probably used for transporting troops home and supplies home Mm -hmm. and then maybe supplying the occupied armies uh, like in Germany and Japan Mm -hmm. and, and things like that. But at the end of that year, it made its first livestock trip. Okay. Um, it left June 29, 1946 for Greece. Okay. And then um, it made another five livestock trips after that, one to Poland, four to Greece, and then it went in and out of various shipping lines and reserve fleets through 1970, mm-hmm. sold in 1993, and there's no, no further records. So it was probably ended up being sold for scrap. Okay. Yeah, we uh, recently received the bell and wheel at the Battle Creek Regional History Museum. We just did a a little ceremony this weekend because it was close to Veterans Day. And, uh, you know, just had a a little... We actually used some of the notes that you sent us, so we thank you for that. That was great. So... um, Yeah, that's so exciting to have have those objects. Yeah, it's great. And we're really excited. We're going to create a special uh, display for it and everything else down the road. But... So can we talk a little bit more about the role of the seagoing cowboys and what, what, how did they come into existence? And they're primarily after the war when the livestock transports were happening. So what impact did they have on the post-war era in war-torn Europe? Um, yeah, they, they really did have an impact. Um, <clears throat> their role, obviously, was to take care of livestock on the the ships Uh Um, mostly horses heifers and mules but there were some chicks and sheep and goats sent as well okay 
Um, they had to join the merchant marine to be legal workers on a merchant ship. Okay. Um, and for that, their status was cattlemen. Okay. And they received one cent per month from the merchant marine for that service mm-hmm. just to make them legal. But um, don't feel bad for them because they were paid $150 per trip by UNRWA, which was pretty good wage at that, at that point, time yeah. in history. So there was, there, essentially, there was essentially two crews on board. There was the, the ones that handle the cattle, and then, of course, then there was the, the, the ship crew itself that managed right. the ship. Okay. The regular, yeah, the regular mariners. And they, they kept pretty separate on some of the ships. Um, there was more mingling, but um, there was definitely a separation there. The seagoing cowboys had a different status in the merchant marine. Mm-hmm. They couldn't be part of the union or, I mean, it was just simply for these for these trips. And there were about 7,000 of these guys that served. Wow. Uh, during the two-year period that UNRWA existed. And they came from all across the United States and Canada, um, ages 16 to 72, and some 15-year-olds wow, snuck in wow. there. Wow, um, Yeah, all walks of life. I mean, it was just an amazing experience for these guys. Now, you mentioned that they had 200,000 cattle, between cattle, horses, and of different livestock and um over that period of time. So I, I looked at the manifest that you'd sent us on the SS Battle Creek Victory, and that's there must have been several ships to be able to make that number because their load was probably all of their cargo manifest was less than a thousand, I think. So that's there. yeah, yeah. The Victory ships held about eight hundred mm-hmm. um, livestock. The Liberties held only three thirty-five. There were um, 73 different ships used by UNRWA, according to their records, but I've found a a couple more than than what they have in their final report. Um, They made 360 trips during that two-year period of time, and they ended up shipping about 300,000 animals. Wow, that's Uh, a lot. Yeah. Yeah, because I looked at the, the load that you had. One of the ship, they had 800 heads of cattle or horses on one of the cargo loads for the the, the information you gave us on the U.S. Battle Creek victory. Yeah, yeah, and so the impact that they had, um, when they got to their destinations, Mm -hmm. which could be Poland, about 40% of the shipments went to Poland, uh, Greece, Italy. UNRWA didn't didn't supply enemy countries. Mm So the ships that went to Italy docked in Trieste, and the animals were shipped on to Yugoslavia. Okay. And then the same with Germany. They docked in, in um, Bremen, but the animals were sent to Czechoslovakia. And then there were a few at the end that went to China. Um, and the people there were just so grateful yeah, I can imagine. for these animals. Um, and... The cowboy, a lot of the cowboys took some relief supplies along with them too, mm-hmm. and gave the clothes that they had with them to the people there. Wow. There was one village outside of Danzig, Poland, Gdansk, Poland, um, that held a celebration for the cowboys to thank them. They had a big banner across the street, and they gave them the um, traditional ceremony of bread and salt, ceremony of hospitality, and they gave them a small 
small meal. Wow. Um, just to say thank you. And, and also in Poland, um, the Polish Department of Agriculture um, often gave the cowboys a banquet to thank them um, wow. for, their, for their service. So it had an impact overseas, but it also had an impact here at home. Yeah. And that was because these guys were some of the first civilians to get into Europe after the war. Okay. And they saw the devastation. They many of them were able to talk with survivors um, and hear their stories. And when they came home, you know, I said there were 7,000 of these guys from all over the country. They mm-hmm. spread the word about the tremendous need and devastation in Europe. Wow. So their testimony uh, was through newspapers, um, Kiwanis clubs, Rotary clubs, schools, churches. Mm-hmm. Um, their testimony helped the relief organizations at the time um, to... to um, keep going. One of those was Mennonite Central Committee, there was Church World Service, and then the Heifer Project, too. So they had a tremendous impact, both overseas and at home. Wow, that's interesting. So it's kind of like the the war bond thing that was going on during the war, with the people coming back, telling, helping to sell war bonds, and, and you saw the sale of war bonds going up as the war progressed. And then you have, you know, the same thing at post-war, people coming in and saying, you know, we really need to reach out and help and probably doing a lot of charitable fundraising at that point in time. Yeah, and it was an interesting time because um, the United States had been giving so much money to UNRWA Mm -hmm. and the populace was wanting to pull back and keep the money at home. Right. So it was a struggle for the relief organizations. So what the what the cowboy testimony did was really um, really important to those to those organizations at that time. Wow. So over the years, have you spoken with some of the former crew of the Vis- Victory class ships? You mentioned that you might have some stories on that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I've interviewed over 150 of these guys, wow. and I have, yeah, and I have diaries and accounts from a lot more of them. Uh, so it's kind of like pulling a needle out of a haystack. Yeah, were any <laughs> any I of the ones that were from during the war? I mean, I know the Battle Creek Victory was at the tail end of the war, right around the surrender of Japan. But any of the other Victory class ship stories from? when they were still in active duty uh, during none, no stories in that time period? No, no okay. I, I don't have any of that. Uh, I have uh, heard from a few of the regular merchant marines. It's mostly seagoing cowboys I've interviewed, but no, it was all after the war. Um, the first UNRWA ships didn't leave until the end of June okay. 1945. Okay. So there was still war going on in the Pacific. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of the some of the cowboys who were on the seas in August when when um, the atomic bombs were sent off mm-hmm. talked about that experience of being on the seas at that time. But they were on the Atlantic and and um, you know weren't even close to to what was going on. Right. Okay. 
Yeah. So what were some of their stories of uh, as seagoing cowboys? I've got three stories that I'll share with you. Okay, great. Um, the first one was from December 1946, and it was an Ohio man by the name of Ralph Whitmer. Okay. He went on the Beloit victory. His trip went to Poland, and the the ships in Poland would dock in um, Noviport usually, which was the port city for uh, Gdansk. Danzig it was its German name, mm-hmm. and. Ralph and three of his friends decided that they wanted to go up to the city of Gdynia, which was um, had not been as damaged as Danzig. Danzig was about 90% destroyed, okay. so there was not much there. But 15 minutes after they left the ship, there was a sign put out that the ship was to leave within 24 hours. Oh, so when these guys got back to their port, their ship was gone, and they were stranded. They wow. didn't have passports, only their, their merchant mariner cards. They didn't have supplies. They didn't have clothes other than what was on their back. They only had $15 between the four of them in oh, their pockets. <laughs> so they found cover in the home of a Polish seaman and stayed with on his floor, slept on his floor. And Ralph says that it was really a nerve-wracking 30 days where they would go to the American Council, they would go to any ship that that was going back to America, and mm-hmm. they finally got passage on, on one of the very last cattle ships that went out. Wow. Um, yeah. So it was yeah, just Ralph a miscommunication? Said, they put up the sign after they'd already gone, they didn't know that they had to be back? At a certain time? Yeah. Sometimes, I mean, you never knew with these ships when they were going to be leaving. They would put up, they would tell you that we'll leave at such and such a time, but their orders might change, and that's what happened with this one. Mm -hmm. Um, So it left earlier than had been anticipated. They thought they'd have plenty of time to (laughs) to go. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, it was quite, quite, quite a story that they had. Oh, the next story is from one of the Merchant Mariners. Mm-hmm. Um, his name is Will Keller, okay. and he was a radio man on the SS Park Victory. He made two trips. The first one went to Poland in 1945, and that one was pretty normal. His second one, the next um, trip the ship made was March 46 to Greece. Mm-hmm. They carried a load of mules. They went up the east coast to Kavala to unload. They went around back down to Piraeus, the, the port for Athens, unloaded. And then UNRWA sent them down to Cyprus to pick up donkeys to take back okay. to um, Salonika. UNRWA sent them back down to Cyprus to pick up more donkeys to go to Patras on the west side of Greece. Okay. Well, April 30, 1946, when they were nearing Patras, maybe 15 miles offshore, Will says there was a boom, and he thought, oh, we've been hit by a torpedo. And they thought, no, 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 the war's over. There's no torpedo. No, no torpedo. 
He said, we've been hit by a mine. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what happened. Wow. And he said, yeah. He said the alarms were going off. There was broken glass. Uh, all the electrical power was lost. The, they were down in the stern of the ship. The, the back of the ship was down in the water, but it was not sinking, fortunately. He said the radio was dead. Um, when he got to the radio room, the tubes were had all jumped out of their sockets, so he got them back into the sockets it wouldn't work wow. he went out on dock and um out on the bridge the antenna wires had come down uh they're usually strung up between the masts and now they were lying on the deck wow over the the top of the cattle stalls so they got those put back up um he was able to radio for help then and a tug came and pulled them into Patras where they docked and the, the uh, donkeys were able to be unloaded. They sent the cowboys down to Athens to find another way home, under found another way home for them. And then the, the regular crew had to stay with the ship. Um, it was deemed seaworthy enough to make it to Toronto, Italy, where it was put in dock for 16 days for temporary repairs. Mm -hmm. So they got to be tourists and went to Rome and, <laughs> and Naples. And, wow. Yeah, they had a big time. So, But the cattlemen had to go get on another ship. <laughs> yeah. Wow, so yeah. they missed out on the Italy trip. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. The last story comes from the Lindenwood victory, which went to China. Wow. And it carried 713 heifer project animals for China. And after they got unloaded, UNRWA sent the ship down to New Zealand. Mm -hmm. That meant that these cowboys had to cross the equator. And there is a ritual that sailors have when someone crosses the equator for the first time and they're given an initiation. <laughs> oh boy, I've heard about some so of this. <laughs> yeah, the regular seamen put these cowboys through an initiation. So Richard Rice, who I've talked to, um, described it, um, saying that they brought them out one at a time on the deck blindfolded. Mm -hmm. And then they were asked, well, how do you like the steward's chow? And if they said, it's good, they would say, fine, here's some more. <laughs> and then if they said, not so good, they'd say, well, try this. So they were given a mouthful of sawdust <laughs> soaked in diesel fuel mixed with a generous amount of cayenne pepper. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> and then they were made to crawl through cornmeal and tar and paddled on their rear ends as they did that. Um, they were made to walk the plank, uh, which was just simply a board on, on deck. Their hair was cut off to their skull. And then they were told that they could relax and sit down in this chair. And 225 volts was sent through it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it was a little, well, hair-raising, if they had any hair left. <laughs> for all that, they got a certificate um, promoting them from the status of polywog to shellback. Oh, good. 
Yeah. <laughs> I bet they hung on yeah. to that one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> some of them did. Yeah. Yeah. Well, those are some great stories. So, you know, I was looking up a list of the whole thing on um, online of the different ships, and I saw, just scanning through the list, because there's so many of the Victory class, I saw there were four that were hit by kamikazes, so they must have been in the Japanese theater of operations for that to have happened. And uh, yeah. none of them sunk, from what I could tell. They they just, some of them re were had to be refit and fixed and i think one of them put one of them out of service but the other one seemed to have been repaired and and kept in use so i don't know how many of those were supplying cattle but um that was still that was still active war for that to have happened so they they weren't probably doing any of that they probably had other cargo they didn't ship to the pacific until after after the armistice so they were carrying probably supplies for troops and things like that that for them yeah Interesting. So can we talk a little bit more about your book, The Seagoing Cowboy? How can people find out about that and um, if they wanted to reach out to you? Sure, I'd love to. Um, The book is a children's picture book uh, written for ages four to eight, but older students have appreciated it and a lot of adults Mm -hmm. have appreciated it, especially the families of the seagoing cowboys. Um, It's about... Uh, two young men, probably 16 years old, uh, mm-hmm. who made a trip to Poland, and what they saw there, and how they gave hope to the to the people. Great. So that's that's the basic story. And the book designer did a wonderful spread in the back of the book with photos from the real seagoing cowboys. Um, and there's a historical note at the end of it too. Um, it was published by the Brethren Press in 2016, mm-hmm. uh, and it's a small press um, that doesn't sell through Amazon because Amazon shafts small publishers. Okay. Um, so basically, the only way to get it is through Brethren Press or through an independent bookstore that would order it for you. Okay. Um, and... You can find it by either just Googling Brethren Press, The Seagoing Cowboy, and that'll pull up the book page, or go to my website, www.seagoingcowboys.com, mm-hmm. and there's a book page there that, that will link it. Um, or they can and, order. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. we're going to probably want to have some at the museum for sale as well. You know, oh, so yeah, we'll probably reach out to Brethren Press and get a supply of them for the museum. Uh, that's good to know. I, I, I was gonna. I hadn't even searched on Amazon, so I didn't know if they were there or not. So no, you won't find it there. Great. We'll go directly to Brethren. And if they want to reach out to you, that's it. They go through the website. You've got a, like a a link on there. Yeah, there's a contact page. Yeah, and I there's okay. a um, a blog that people can follow if they're interested. Um, I post every second and Friday of the month various stories about the cowboys and and the history. So you're ongoing, you're continuing to do ongoing research and interviewing these guys. Are you working on a larger project, maybe to create a larger book? I mean, imagine there's uh, more than just a children's picture book coming out of all your research. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, there is. Um, <clears throat> I'm currently working on a book about the first decade of the Heifer Project. Okay. And it's been a huge undertaking. Um 
after being in the writing stage for two and a half years, I'm only about halfway through that. Wow. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, <clears throat> I had intended a, an, a book for adults on the seagoing cowboys. I don't know if that'll ever get written or not. There aren't very many of these guys living anymore. Right. Uh, so my interviewing is pretty well stopped. But yeah, yeah, I've got. 25 bankers boxes full of material here in my own little arkham well that's great that's good um material to have if you uh hopefully we'll have you get the other books done i'm sure everybody would love to read those there's probably a a whole rich history that's just waiting to be heard and it's kind of an interesting um chapter of history i don't think i've heard anybody mention this before until i came across your research online uh, and it's a yeah. it was such an important part of the the good outcome of helping Europe recover. You know, for that yeah. much livestock to go across. I mean, there was definitely a demand and a need for that in Europe, and they probably could have done three times as much if they had even more support during that time. Um, you know, because there was so much destruction over in Europe from that whole conflict, and it's amazing that. Yeah. Uh, what these guys did. Um, well, any last stories that you want to tell before we wrap up today? Um, if people are interested in seeing a victory ship, right? there are three of them uh, that are museums. There is the um, American Victory in Tampa, Florida, um, the Red Oak in Richmond, California, and the Lane Victory in Los Angeles. Okay. So, so they can actually um, tour and go walk on, on board of one of those ships? Great. Yeah. W- yeah. Where's the one in Tampa at? Is it? Um... It's in the bay near the aquarium. Oh, okay. Great. Yeah, I've been on that one. Uh, I haven't been on the other two. Yeah. Well, that's good. I know a lot of people from Michigan go down to Florida quite a bit, so maybe they can put yeah. that on their list to go see, and then they can get a feel for what maybe the SS Battle Creek Victory was like, or the Albion Victory, exactly. or or one of the other yeah. ones, you know. Um, and they were equipped with. I saw that the the I don't know if they were at the end of the war, but they were equipped with guns on the front and the back. Um, from the diagrams that I saw and maybe the ones that were completed right. post-war left those off but um, yeah yeah the the guns had all been removed from the livestock ships right. okay so. that would make sense it was a whole different era yeah. no one's at war anymore <laughs> at that point well it's been fascinating talking to you Peggy I really enjoyed uh, hearing these stories I could probably go on for another hour hearing some more stories so we may just have to have you back on at some point you know but such wonderful um history and and tales that you have and it's just great that you're doing this research because i don't think anybody else is and it's a legacy that definitely needs to be preserved and and shared with the next generation so well thank you for this opportunity to share the stories with people thank you Thank you for coming on today. So I've been speaking with Peggy Rife Miller. She's the author of the book, Seagoing Cowboys. You can find her book. You can contact her through her website, find access to getting a hold of her book. And we've been talking about the SS Battle Creek Victory and the Victory Class ships. And it's been a fascinating chapter of history. We have 
the bell and the wheel for the SS Battle Creek victory at the Battle Creek Regional History Museum now. And you should stop by and see that. If you'd like to find out more about me, you can reach me at michaeldelaware.com. And I'm always happy to hear from my listeners. And until next time, when we take another journey down into yesterday and explore yet another fascinating chapter of Southwest Michigan history. Thank you for listening.